Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Genesis chapter 46 this evening. Genesis 46. We're going to travel through chapter 48. As I'm sure it's been a busy day, let's pause and wait upon the Lord. What a great song that we sang at the end of worship of Jesus being our living hope. Because he's alive, our hope is alive. And and hope is the confident expectation of coming good, that, that God is good and that he's doing good in our lives. And so let's go to him in prayer. Father, we thank you that you are with us, that you're our dad. And holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done in our lives. We desire that uh, you would speak to us through the life of Jacob, through the life of Joseph, his brothers, that you would remind us once again of your faithfulness, that you would fill our hearts with hope. We do take a moment just to wait upon you. Father, we don't desire for this just to be a Wednesday night routine where we come to church, we, we go through the Bible, we go through the book of Genesis, but we, we ask that you would speak through your word, that it would be vibrant in our hearts and our lives, and we need you. We need your grace. We need you to, to speak to us clearly. And we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. As we study the book of Genesis, God really highlights characters. He highlights particular individuals, and he's telling his story through their story. And we see Jacob and Joseph being the highlight of tonight's Bible study. Joseph's brothers have come to Egypt to be able to buy food in the famine. Joseph is in charge, second in charge to Pharaoh. He reveals himself to his brothers. Now his brothers are going back to get dad, Jacob, who is 130 years old. Yes, 130 years old. He's going to make the trip, not only the trip, but he's going to relocate from Canaan, the promised land, to Egypt. And in the midst of this, we see God's faithfulness. We see God's steadfast faithfulness. An outside observer of Jacob's family would be, it is messed up to the core. The dude has multiple wives, and he has a favorite wife, so the sons are completely divided with each other. They fight against each other. They sell Joseph as a slave after convincing themselves that homicide wasn't a good idea. I mean, to say that this family is dysfunctional is to put it lightly. But in the midst of this, in the midst of this chaos, God is going to use these 12 sons to birth the 12 tribes of Israel. He is going to birth his nation through Jacob. It's God's grace. It's God's steadfast faithfulness revealed through Jacob's life. But what we do find with Jacob, though he is flawed and he is filled with error and he's filled with sin, is he didn't stop believing in God. He didn't stop believing in the goodness of God. And as we track his life closer to his death, we see his continued faith. So God is faithful. God's steadfast faithfulness, and we see Jacob continuing to trust in that faithfulness. So Israel, who is also Jacob, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. 
You know, I think moving gets more difficult the older you are. Would you agree with that? Especially if you had the opportunity to settle into one community, to settle into to one home. And Jacob is very settled. He's done a lot of moving in his life, but he's older now. And now he's moving at this point because Joseph is alive in Egypt. And he gets his stuff and gets his sons and his family, and they get to Beersheba. And Beersheba has a rich history already. This is where God met with Hagar, where God met with Abraham, where God met with Isaac. Jacob has lived in Beersheba in the past. And Jacob stops here, and he offers a sacrifice to the God of his father Isaac, to his God. It shows his worship, it shows his surrender, and in the midst of worship, God speaks, and that's the case many times, is we get our attention upon the Lord, and we worship, and we surrender, God speaks to us. Then God spoke to Israel in the vision of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob, and he said, here I am. God speaks to him through this vision and this dream, and he calls him by name, Jacob, Jacob. The Lord knows us by name. To the Lord... We're not just a number, but we are an individual that he designed, that he loves. He knows us inside and out. He knows our name. Jacob needs to hear from God in this transition. Why? Because the Lord has called them to live in Canaan. And there was much struggle in Jacob's life to get back to Canaan and dwell in the promised land. Now he's leaving the promised land to go to Egypt, a pagan land. Is he making the right decision? It's the logical decision. There's no food in Canaan, and because of Joseph's wisdom, there's a lot of food in Egypt. This is where the provision is, but he has to be wondering, is this the right call? Is this the right decision? And God calls him by name, and he responds, here I am. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go down to Egypt, for I will make of you a great nation there. God says, I'm the God of your father. Just as I was faithful to your father Isaac, I will be faithful to you. Just as I was faithful to Abraham, I will be faithful to you. In Psalms 90, verse 1, it speaks of that God is the God of all generations. And we have the benefit of seeing that through scripture, seeing that through church history, God has been faithful. He's that faithful refuge throughout all of the generations. And God reminds Jacob of that and then says, I'm going to be with you when you go to Egypt. God is not bound to a particular location. You know, maybe you've lived here for a really long time or been at Rocky Mountain Calvary for a really long time, and and God is calling you to a new place, to a new city, to a new state, to a new location, and you're like, I don't know if God is really going to be present in this new city. Now, that's nonsense, right? God will be present with you in the new city. God will provide another church family, another church fellowship for you to be in. He is not limited to a location. And so he says, I'm going to be with you when you go to Egypt. And in Egypt, I'm going to make you a great nation. They're going to enter into Egypt as 70 people. That's Jacob, his sons, their kids. And they will live, leave, as we'll see in the book of Exodus, as a mass multitude. God birthed them as a nation in the midst of Egypt. We're watching this unfold, and we're going, man, this is crazy. Joseph is sold as a slave, gets reunited with his brothers in this famine. And God knows this is exactly what I'm doing. I'm going to build my nation, my chosen people, 
in Egypt. God's building program is always different than ours. We have an idea of how God's going to build our lives. We have an idea of how God's going to build our families. We have an idea of how God's going to build his kingdom and bring the lost unto himself. But usually, we don't think of Egypt. This is off the beaten path. This is out of the box. This is not where you would think God would build up his chosen people because he had promised to give them the land of Canaan. Verse 4, I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. I'm going to go with you to Egypt, but I'm also going to bring you back to the promised land. Now, how difficult that was going to be is probably a lot more than Jacob would have ever expected. As the future Pharaoh will turn his heart against Jacob's descendants, and Moses will come and be the deliverer that God uses. And he says, you're going to put your hands and your eyes on Joseph, this lost son. Remember, Jacob thought that everything was against him because Joseph had passed away. If he only knew what had God had in store for him. And this is something that I believe that God would want to speak to our hearts is hopefully all of us as believers, we have the hope of heaven in our hearts, which trumps all. That should be our ultimate goal and hope and our longing for is heaven. But some of us have lost confidence that God is going to do anything good in our lives between now and when we go home to heaven. We're pretty much like Eeyore, like life sucks, life sucks, life sucks, life sucks. I can't wait till I die. I can't wait till I die. And I'll go to heaven and heaven will be great, right? And I'm not saying that everything's going to turn out our way. But I am saying that I do think the scripture teaches that God has a plan for our lives. And it's a plan to reveal his glory and, and to use our lives. And you might be in a place like Jacob where you're like, all things are against me. Hope is lost. Keep walking. Keep journeying. And you may be very surprised at the joy that the Lord has set before you. The way his plan unfolds in your life. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So Pharaoh had given these carts to help with the move, and I think this is the first version of U-Haul trucks, these carts, these moving carts. And Jacob's so old that he has to be carried by his sons. So they took their livestock their goods which they had acquired in the land of Canaan and went to Egypt. Jacob and all of his descendants with him, his sons and his sons' sons, his daughters and his sons' daughters, and all of his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. And verse 8, Now these were the names of the children of Israel, Drake, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben was Jacob's firstborn. And then from verse 8 down to verse 26, it lists Jacob's sons and their children. And why is this genealogy so important? Why are these 12 sons highlighted as they journey into Egypt? Two reasons is because this is going to birth the nation of Israel. It's going to birth the nation of Israel. And from which Jesus is going to be born of the tribe of Judah. And secondly, it shows us how God took such a few amount of people and birthed them into a nation. Seventy people 
And then when we see in the book of Exodus, when they're delivered out of Egypt, the amazing mass multitude that they became. So we're going to jump down to verse 26. I'll leave the genealogy for bedtime reading for you guys. All the persons who went with Jacob to Egypt who came from his body, besides Jacob's son's wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph were born to him in Egypt were two persons. All the persons of the house of Jacob who went to Egypt were 70. So we have 70 from Jacob that are going to be living in Egypt. Verse 28, Then he sent Judah before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to Goshen. And they came to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot and went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. There's something so special about a mom, so special about a dad. You really can't put it into words. You definitely can't put a price tag on it. And Joseph has been away from his parents since he was 17 years old. His mom has been passed away, Rachel, for some years. And I'm sure that he never thought that he would see his dad again. There's no communication. His dad thinks he's dead. There's no texting. There's no FaceTime. There's none of that. Just complete silence. How many times did Jacob think, I wonder how dad's doing? I wonder if dad knows I'm alive or what did my brothers tell him? And now they're reunited. And you see the joy that comes over them as they're weeping on each other. And Joseph is weeping upon his dad and kissing his dad. And this has to be just a small foreshadowing of what some reunions are going to be like in heaven. The greatest joy is going to be seeing the Lord by far. And secondary is going to be some glorious reunions. Do you have some family members that have gone before you to heaven that it's going to be so glorious to see them in heaven? In verse 30, And Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I've seen your face, because you are still alive. It's like, oh, I'm good now. My life is full. I've seen Joseph. I can go in peace. In verse 31, Then Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock And they have brought their livestock, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? That you shall say, Your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. What? They hate shepherds? Yeah, they hate shepherds. They're an abomination to them. Why do they hate shepherds? I have no idea. The scripture doesn't tell us why the Egyptians hated shepherds, but apparently prejudice has been going on for a really long time. But Joseph uses this to his advantage. He wants his family to live in Goshen. Goshen is the best land. It's the best land of Egypt, and it's the best place for all of their herds of sheep and goats and such, and I'm not a rancher, so, yeah, and so he's going to use their prejudice to make sure that Pharaoh knows, hey, they are 
shepherds so that he'll put them out in Goshen. Nobody wanted to be neighbors with shepherds. So once they hear that they're shepherds, Pharaoh's going to agree to put them in Goshen. In chapter 47, then Joseph went and told Pharaoh and said, my father and your brothers, their fathers and their herds and all they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and presented them to Pharaoh. The Pharaoh said to his brothers, what's your occupation? And they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we have come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks. For the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. God's so good. God's so faithful. And here's Jacob, who spent a lot of his early life being the manipulator. Remember? He manipulated to get the birthright through deception from his father. He was always trying to get the upper hand by his own manipulation. But he came to a place of surrender. God broke him. God changed his name to Israel. And here we see in his old age that God has preserved Joseph, put Joseph in this place where he's second in command to all of Egypt. And as they come into Egypt for refuge, there's such favor that they get the best land. They get the best land. Plus, they're made to be the bosses of the other herdsmen, of the other shepherds. God's faithfulness, God's goodness being expressed to Jacob and his sons. You ever felt that in your life? You go, man, I know me. And the blessing that I'm experiencing in my life is because of God's grace. It's because of his steadfast faithfulness in my life. Then Joseph brought in his father Jacob and set him before the Pharaoh, and Jacob blessed Pharaoh. Wait a second, who blessed who? At this point, Pharaoh is the dominant man in the region because of the famine. He's the only one that's got food. You could say he's potentially the most powerful person on the planet at this point. But what does Jacob have that the Pharaoh doesn't have? A relationship with the one true living God. So the greater blesses the not as great. That's a principle, right? So if you're blessed by someone, they're they're greater. And so Jacob is the greater because he's doing the blessing of Pharaoh. He has that relationship with the one true living God. Remember that. Someone might outrank you in education. They might outrank you economically. They might outrank you in experience. But if you know the Lord, you're able to bless them through that relationship with the one true living God. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life, and they have not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers in the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh and went out before Pharaoh. 
How did Jacob see his life? Well, he saw it as a pilgrimage. When you're a pilgrim, you're traveling. It has a destination. You're just passing through. And he knows that he's passing through to his ultimate home with the Lord. Keep that in mind. This is not a destination point. We're just passing through. We're on a pilgrimage. Also, he describes 130 years as few. (laughs) I think no matter how old you are, when you come to the end of your life, there's a tendency to say, man, it went quick. It went fast. I've been given a few days here on, on this earth. But he also says that he's experienced evil. There's been evil in his days. I think many times we're surprised by the hardship of our lives. We're, we're surprised by the evil that is in us and in others and the pain that, that that brings in our lives. And Jacob highlights that as well. But he says, look, even though I'm 130, my, my father outlived me. My, my father Isaac was, was older than I was. I don't know about you, but I'm kind of glad the lifespan has shortened a little bit. So 130 is a long time. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all of his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. Now there was no bread in the land, in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they brought, bought. And Joseph brought the money into the Pharaoh's house. So the famine gets so bad that everyone takes the money that they had to be able to buy grain. So in the midst of this, Pharaoh is becoming a very wealthy man. He's the only one that, got, that has grain. And so people just keep bringing their money, bringing their money. They don't have any other option. In verse 15, So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For money has failed. Isn't that an interesting expression? Meditate on that a little bit. Money has failed. It's failed. The money is all gone. The economic system has collapsed. The famine's so great that it crushed the economic value. All the money is spent to be able to buy grain. This is hard for us to comprehend, but this is biblical. Money does fail. Paul would write to Timothy, and he says, Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Command those who are rich in this life. Command those who have money in this life. Don't trust in uncertain riches. You may be blessed by God with a lot of money, but that money can fail. This whole system that we have in the United States, if you really analyze our economic system, it is stacked on a deck of cards called debt, right? It is very possible at some point in our future that the whole economic system is going to just completely collapse. And I don't want to scare you, right? I think we understand that there's so much debt. We look back on history, and there was the Great Depression. Guys, famines come. 
Famines come and famines go, and in the midst of that, there is great economic crisis, and the money fails. And you're like, man, I needed some encouragement tonight. I'm so glad I came on on Wednesday night. It does happen. It's, it's part of life. But notice what it says here. So that's why you don't trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God. You trust in God. Be a good steward of finances. You know, it's the wrong attitude to take and go, well, the whole system could collapse, so I'm not going to be wise with the money that God provided. No, no, be as wise as you possibly can. Be a good steward with what God has, has provided, but trust in the Lord, not in, I've got this much money in the bank, or I've got this much money invested. My trust is in the living God, and I love the balance that Paul gives here. He says, who gives us richly all things to enjoy. So God wants us trusting him with finances, and then he wants us enjoying what he has provided for us. So the money has failed in Egypt. So here's Joseph's solution. Then Joseph said, give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with the bread in exchange for all of the livestock that year. Joseph says, okay, you're out of money? Bring me your horse. Bring me your donkey. Bring me your cow. And he would buy up all of the livestock in order to give the people bread. So now Pharaoh has all the money in the land, and he also has all of the livestock in the land. And it continues. When that year had ended, they came to the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. So this famine is so severe, we don't have any more money. We don't have any more livestock. All we have left is our land and our bodies. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for, our, for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. So we're willing to give you our land, and we're willing to give you ourselves. We're willing to be your servants. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them, so the land became Pharaoh's. You know, a lot of companies talk about making good hires, hiring good people with character and skill. Well, Pharaoh made a really good hire with Joseph. I mean, that, that was a very strategic move. It really paid off because Joseph just has all of this wisdom to continue to make things work out well for Pharaoh. Okay, guys, you've given your money. You've given your livestock. Now go ahead and give your land. If you want some of this bread that we've saved up, you need to go ahead and exchange in uh, your land as well. In verse 21, And as for the people, he moved them into the cities, from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other, only the land of the priests he did not buy, for the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, false priests serving false gods, and they ate their rations with which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore, they did not sell their land. So, so Joseph has the foresight to say, this is going to be so bad that we can't have people living all over the country. We need them centralized in cities. 
And it's almost shelters, coming in in shelters where it's easier to be able to bring food to them. And so he gets all of that orchestrated. But he takes another step in verse 23. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is the seed for you, and you shall sow the land. And it shall come to pass in the harvest that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh, four-fifths shall be, be your own, as seed for the field and your food for those of your household and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Joseph had the foresight to save seed. He knew the famine would be so bad that seed would be valuable. He's the only one that has seed to be able to give. So he gives it back to them and say, you guys want seed? And they're like, yeah. We're completely starving here. Well, great. For your harvest, then, one-fifth always goes back to Pharaoh. Continuing forward, he created residual income for Pharaoh moving forward to this day. So that's amazing, right? And when you read this, you kind of look at this and you go, man, everything's stacked towards Pharaoh in this equation, and Joseph's the one that is doing it. But what's Joseph's job? He's working for Pharaoh. But in the process of Joseph's wisdom, all of the people are saved. You know, if Joseph wasn't there being used by God, they would literally be dying because of this famine. So here's the application. Is a lot of times we as Christians, we don't really know what to do with money and physical property, and we kind of separate all of that from our relationship with the Lord, and we go, okay, well, maybe unbelievers will let unbelievers be really good at business and let unbelievers make really good uh, financial decisions. And I think when it comes down to it, God sees it all more mixed together. Like when you put something in the Vitamix or you put something in the Ninja. You guys have Ninjas, the blenders? Not talking martial arts here. You guys with me, right? It just gets all blended up. And our worship can also be in physical things like money. It should be in physical things like money. It should be in physical things like property. And to be able to say, I want to use godly wisdom in area of finances, not for my own greed, but for God's glory and for his kingdom and for the benefit of others. But God would want us to make good financial decisions. What I just read to you is amazing financial decisions. Joseph had the wherewithal to create residual income for Pharaoh going into the future. He saw a famine as an opportunity. He's like, there's this famine that's coming, so we're going to save for seven years of prosperity. So now when the famine comes, not only are people going to be saved, but Pharaoh is really going to be able to benefit. I think this is a hard road to walk because a lot of times, once a person is responsible in finances and responsible in property and such and those kind of things, it's hard to maintain a heart of giving, isn't it? It's easy to get greedy. It's, either to ju- it's easy just to either not care and go, I'm not even going to worry about that. That's not even a part of my relationship with the Lord. Or, okay, Lord, you want me to be a faithful steward of this. 
and to lose sight of God may be blessing you so that you could be a blessing. But wouldn't it be cool if God raised up Joseph's in our generation and Josephina's, right? Where when hard times come upon our city, they're looking to the people of God. That's really the story of Joseph and Daniel. They're like, who has this kind of character, the kind of wisdom and the kind of integrity to lead through this kind of crisis? And they went to Joseph and they went to Daniel and they were really used by the Lord. So a lot to chew on with that. In verse 27, so Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt in the country of Goshen and they had possessions there and grew and multiplied exceedingly. This is God's blessing. God's bigger than Egypt, bigger than the famine, and he just begins to bless Israel, bless Joseph and his brothers and their possessions, and they begin to grow, and God's birthing the nation of Israel, blessing them so that they can be a blessing to others. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. Here he comes up to Egypt at 130 years, and he feels like, I'm done. I'm tapped out. I mean, over. Peace out. See ya, right? I got to see Joseph. Drop the mic. I'm done, right? But he had 17 more years of blessing in Egypt with Joseph, who he thought was dead. You never know what God's got in store for you. In verse 29, when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, now if I have found favor in your sight, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. This is the way of making a vow, is that you would put the hand under the thigh. Also thankful that we don't do that anymore, but... Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, swear to me. And he swore to him, so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. So as he's coming to the end of his life, he says, look, son, I, I don't want you to bury me here in Egypt. I want you to bury me in, in Canaan. I want you to swear it. So go ahead, put your hand under my thigh. All right, now I know you're committed. Why did he do this? Because he continued to have faith in God's promises. He's seen God's steadfast faithfulness. He says, I'm trusting you, God, that you're gonna be faithful to your promise to bring us back into Canaan, and I want my burial to be an expression of that faith. And the next few chapters give us more detail on Jacob's passing day. We're going to just look at chapter 48 tonight, and then we'll finish the book of Genesis next week, Lord willing. So chapter 48. Now it came to pass after these things that Joseph was told, indeed your father is sick. And he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And Jacob was told, look, your, your son Joseph is coming to you. And Israel strengthened himself and sat up on the bed. What's interesting about Manasseh and Ephraim is they never lived in Canaan. They're born in Egypt. They're, they're Joseph's sons. And here they're spending time with their grandfather, Israel. And Israel, who's also Jacob, he strengthens himself because he knows he's seeing Joseph and his grandsons. Then Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me and said to me, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. I will make of you a multitude of people and give this land to your descendants after you 
as an everlasting possession. Jacob remembers when God spoke to him, when God revealed himself to him. And he says, God made me this promise that he was going to make me into a great nation, but also give me this land, this land of Canaan. One of the many testimonies of God is the birth of the nation of Israel and God's continued steadfastness to to Israel. It's an expression of his grace and his commitment to the nation of Israel. What is the most contested piece piece of real estate in the world? It's Israel. Because it's the only piece of land that God said that he gave to a specific people group. I know the Texans believe that God gave them Texas, but it's not in the Bible, right? You know, and we as Americans really feel that God gave us this land. Well, it's not in the Bible. The, the only land that we see the Lord saying, hey, this belongs to this group of people is the nation of Israel. And so it's so largely contested. It's spiritual. But Jacob's holding on to this promise. He's sharing this promise with Joseph and Manasseh and Ephraim. And now your two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. As Reuben and Simeon, they shall be mine. Your offspring, whom you begot after them, shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers and their inheritance. I love this about Jacob. With all of his flaws, at the end of his days, he is continuing to trust in the Lord and trust in God's faithfulness, and he's building a godly heritage. And he says, look, Ephraim and Manasseh, they're with us. They're part of this inheritance, and they're not going to go by their Egyptian names. I would think that it would be very easy for Ephraim and Manasseh to identify themselves as Egyptians. That's where they're born. Their dad's second in command to Pharaoh. And then here comes grandpa. He's the abominable shepherd, right? And here comes the uncles who are shepherds that are looked down upon. And what does Jacob say? No, we're the people of God. You're, you're going to identify uh, with us. And he's passing on that faith and that legacy. In verse 17, but as for me, when I came from Pandan, Rachel died beside me in the land of Canaan on the way when there was but a distance, a little distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. Then Israel saw Joseph's sons and said, who are these? Jacob's eyes are failing him. Joseph said to his father, they are my sons whom God has given me in this place. And he said, please bring them to me and I will bless them. Now the eyes of Israel were dim with age, probably cataracts, so that he could not see. Then Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, I had not thought to see your face, but in fact, God has also shown me your offspring. So brought, Joseph brought them from beside his knees, and he bowed down with his face to the earth. And Joseph took them both, Ephraim with his right hand towards Israel's left hand, and Manasseh with his left hand towards Israel's right hand, and brought them near him. Then Israel stretched out his hands and laid it on Ephraim's head, who was the younger, and his left hand on Manasseh's head, guiding his hands, knowing knowingly, for Manasseh was the firstborn. So Jacob switches the logical progression of who should receive the greatest blessing. 
The greatest blessing should go to the oldest, but Jacob perceives that that's not God's plan. And he blessed Joseph and said, God, before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has fed me all my long, who has fed me all my life long to this day, the angel who's redeemed me from all evil, bless the lads. Let my name be upon them and the name of my father Abraham and Isaac and let them grow into a multitude in the midst of all the earth. Now when Jacob saw that his father laid his his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. So he took hold of his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn, but put your right hand on his head. So Joseph sees all of this coming down and he's like, no, this is not the way this is gonna go. This is not the way that this is supposed to be. And he begins to plead with his father, But his father refused him and said, I know, my son, I know. He shall become a people, and he also shall be great. But truly, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. So he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will bless, saying, My God, make you as Ephraim and Manasseh. And thus he set Ephraim before Manasseh. And Israelites still pray this over their children, over their boys. May you be like Ephraim and Manasseh. And Ephraim was the younger, but now he's been given that place of of, of prominence. And Jacob just perceives that this is what the Lord was doing. This is what God did in his life. Esau was older, but Jacob was the one who uh, received the blessing. And so Jacob perceives God's leading in this. Remember, everything in Scripture is recorded for us for a purpose, and we need, as parents, to be open to God's story in our kids' lives. I think we all try, as as parents, to remove our expectations from our kids' lives, but we still place them there, don't we, right? Okay, this is my oldest, and this is the role that I think they'll play in the family, and and thus and thus, as the the kids go down. And God's got his own story for, for the kids, right? And then as we're perceiving other people's children, don't put something on them just because this is who their parents are, right? God's got their own story. They're individuals, and he's got his own plan uh, for their lives. And so it's a good reminder for us to go, you know what? God doesn't live in my expectations for my kids. He, he's got his own plan, and it's, it's different probably than the plan that, that I would have. So verse 21, Then Israel said to Jacob, Behold, I'm dying. But God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. This expression of faith. God is going to be faithful to bring you back to the promised land. Moreover, I've given you one portion above your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Ammonite with my sword and my bow. Joseph gets an extra portion, even though he's not the oldest as well. I want to encourage you, if you find yourself journeying towards the latter part of your life, whatever that may be, you know, Jacob really takes the opportunity that the end of his life brings to provide direction for his family, to pronounce blessing, to pray, to instill what God had put on his heart 
And I would encourage you to, to do that. It mean, means so much. You know, take the opportunity to pray for your kids and, and your grandkids, to, to take time to put your hands on them and pray for them. You know, if there's things that are on your heart for your family, write those down and express your, your faith in, in God. And Jacob really stands out here at the end of his life where we've seen God's faithfulness, his grace, his steadfast faithfulness in Jacob's life, and Jacob's continuing to trust that faithful God. You know, there's some heartbreaking news in the church as a whole this, this week. Uh, Joshua Harris, who was a popular author at the end of the 90s, he wrote a book, uh, I Kissed uh, Dating Goodbye. Uh, this week, he just renounced his faith. He publicly said that he is no longer uh, a Christian. Um, and in July, he went through a divorce, and then in August, he says, I, all of the terms, this is what he wrote, all the terms to, that I know of to define a Christian, I can no longer define myself uh, as, as a Christian. And it, it's just heartbreaking. I don't know him personally. I don't know his story. You know, I read his books back in the, in the late uh, 90s, and you know, I don't bring this up to, to bring judgment upon him, and I'm praying for him. You know, I don't think it's the, the end of his story. I think God very well could be faithful to bring him back to his, his faith uh, in, in the Lord. But it, it is heartbreaking to see someone who is an author and a pastor, any Christian that, that has walked with the Lord, to then say, well, I'm, I'm no longer a Christian. I don't believe in, in, in Jesus Christ. And, you know, Joshua Harris went on to say, don't feel sorry for me. I, I've never felt more free in my life and, and those, and those uh, type, type of, of things. And then as I was studying this this week, I go, man, Jacob's the exact opposite of that. He's the exact opposite of that. His life has a lot of bumps. His life has a lot of turns. Uh, it has strengths. It has weaknesses. It has failure. It has sin. But here he is at the end of his life at 147 years old, and he's like, I believe in God. I believe in his faithfulness. I believe in his promises. I believe in his word. And God is going to be faithful to his, his word. And God does not call us to perfection, but he does call us to faith. Amen? Like, we're going to have failure and shortcomings, just like Jacob. We already do, and we're going to add more to that mess before we go home to, to be with the Lord. But God calls us to trust him, and God calls us to, to believe in his word, and he will be faithful. God is faithful. He, his faithfulness is steadfast. It's continued. And for us to be able to respond and say, man, I'm going to trust the Lord. And I do believe this with all my heart. It's important that you have a point in your life where you did receive Christ as your Savior, and if you've never received Christ as your Savior, I pray tonight would be the night where you would surrender your heart to Jesus and say, I want to be saved. Jesus saved me. But as we had that one point of decision, it's, it's important that we continue to walk in abiding faith. What do I mean by that? I simply mean this, that tonight, I still believe Jesus is God. I still believe Jesus died for my sins. I still believe that, that he rose again. I'm continuing to believe in the gospel. That's important in, in our lives. You know, we don't want to get to a place where we go, man, I received the Lord at, back at this point in my life, but it has no relevance to my life today. Or I don't believe that Jesus is God. I don't believe that he died for my sins. I don't believe that, that he uh, rose again. To stay in that place of faith. And, and for some reason, if you've wandered from that place, if you 
or have gotten away from your faith in the gospel, man, it's important to get back to that place of trusting and believing that Jesus died for you and rose again. And if you've got to wrestle through questions, wrestle through questions. If you've got to do some work, some homework, look at apologetics, by all means do it. But when God brings either salvation or judgment in our lives, it's based on faith. And it's based on faith in the gospel and that abiding faith of what Jesus Christ has done for us. So church, we want to finish like Jacob, amen? As long as the Lord gives us breath to be able to say, man, I believe the Lord. I believe his promises. I believe his word. He is going to be faithful to his word. And so let's, let's pray together. Father, we come before you and Lord, we just do cry out to you for, for Joshua Harris and God, I don't know him. I don't know what he's gone through. Um, but Lord, I know that you will be faithful. And I pray that you'd be faithful even in this month to continue to pursue his heart. And we pray in time that he would come back to his faith. And Lord, we look at our hearts and our lives and we want to continue in steadfast faith. And we know that you are faithful, that we see that in, in Jacob's life. You're you're faithful. You're going to be faithful to your word. And so, Lord, would you strengthen our faith? May we trust your word and trust that your, your promises are true. And so, God, would you meet us in this time of communion? And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen.